One of the challenges of preaching through this is that there's simply too much to talk about. I have, in fact, preached through our doctrinal statement. One time I was an interim pastor at a church and they had doctrinal questions and so we preached, or I preached, through the doctrinal statement. And this would have taken probably five or six sermons to work through this amount of material. It is my general habit to preach expository sermons and so I would select a suitable passage. We read a passage on the Lord's Supper and I use that to preach about the Lord's Supper or any number. If we're going to preach about baptism, we'd be in Romans chapter 6 and we could be any number of places. But today I'm trying to go through all of this. So I feel like I'm not going to do a very good job on any of it on just account of the volume of things we need to look at. I will tell you in a confessional mode I didn't learn ecclesiology from the Bible I learned ecclesiology from the pew I learned ecclesiology by sitting in Parkview Missionary Baptist Church from the time I was four years old to the time I was 18 years old and I observed ecclesiology in action I observed people being baptized. I observed us taking the Lord's Supper. I watched the business meetings that my parents drug me to every single one. And I saw the church deciding things and discussing things. I saw when we didn't have a pastor what that was like and what we looked for in a pastor coming to lead us. It was only later as I grew and as I began to study the Word of God that I began to discover the things that I had been observing for many years were being happening because of what we believed about the Word of God. But the tradition was handed to me because it was shown to me. Now there's a number of things that our, pass, or our, uh, our, our confession talks about here. And the first thing it talks about is the visibility of a church. Now when we talk about a church being visible, I'm not talking about that it needs to have a tall steeple so you can see it from anywhere in town. I'm not talking about that it needs to have a good sign out front so that people can find you, although that's not bad. Nor am I saying that a church must be visible so that a church must always advertise its presence in, to a government that might be trying to persecute it or stamp it out. But what we're talking about is that a church can never be just an invisible idea. It can never be just a feeling that people have towards one another. A church is ultimately a congregating it is a gathering together. Whether that church be a house church of 10 people or it be a mega church of 2,000 people, a church must gather together. We as a church must embody 
the body of Christ. In the last two years, we have seen churches struggle a great deal with this concept as we have tried to walk through different requests from our government and different things that have happened and how we continue to gather when our people don't want to gather. But there is still a very real need to be in one another's presence. I remember two years ago at this time, our, our church shifted to meeting in the parking lot, as many churches did. And it was weird, but we were still there. And we might not be hugging each other at the moment, but we were still yelling at each other across the parking lot because God's people still want to be together. This is the natural outcome of the work of Christ in us. Our confession also talks about who makes up this church. What is the composition of the church? And it says that a church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers. Now we have discussed already this semester extensively the nature of salvation and so we won't go back over what it means to be a believer in Christ but it's staggeringly obvious in the New Testament that the expectation is that the churches whom Paul or Peter are writing to are believers. They are composed of believers. Now, unfortunately, in time, as time wore on, people began to slide away from that. In time, parents, well-intentioned parents, wanted their children to be included too. But we should be very careful about adopting or using an ecclesiology that gives a false sense of soothing to a soul under conviction. We should be very wary of telling people that their soul is okay with Christ when that is not in fact true. Because every person is in need of a Savior. And our Savior is not the church. And our Savior is not our parents. Our Savior is Christ. And lest we take out too hard against other people, let us just perhaps remind ourselves that Baptists struggle because we try to get our kids to pray a prayer and then get them to the baptistry because water makes it stick, apparently. And we, we wait a few years later to five or six or seven, but we're kind of doing the same thing. And oh, let us train up our children. Let us train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Of course, let us, let us live lives before them that they may see Christ in us and His work through us. Let us hope for their salvation, pray for their salvation, expect their salvation. But let us not imagine that we can short-circuit the working of the Holy Spirit, that we can jump in and assist Him in convicting and drawing our children to Himself. 
Let us encourage their faith, yes, but let us not give them false assurances in the midst of their spiritual travail. And so, yes, it needs to be believers who compose the church. And not just believers, but baptized believers. The simple fact is we have this habit of saying people have made a profession of faith, that they have orally told us that they have believed in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with someone orally telling us that. But the biblical profession of faith is a little bit more than talking. The biblical profession of faith is in fact the waters of baptism. It is there that we show forth our faith. It is when we go into the waters. As Romans chapter 6 says, Therefore we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His, res of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You see, our baptism is a symbol of faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And because part of its value is symbolic, it must have some kind of connection with what it symbolizes. It should show forth in some meaningful way the thing that it points to. And therefore, that is why we say it must be immersion in water of a believer. Because it shows forth our connection, our union with Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. And as we identify with Christ's death and resurrection, we show that we have, in fact, died to our sin. It is our hope for now, and it's our hope for the future as we hope for the resurrection that is yet to come. And so, a church is composed of those who have shown forth their faith. And take note that we baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Well, Jesus told us to, which is always a great reason to do something. If you're going to name Him as Lord, well, that should mean something. But we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because... Our understanding of God matters. That God is a trinity is not just some random theological idea we talk about in class. It is who God is. And that is who we have put our faith in. And if we have put our faith in anybody but the Trinitarian God revealed in God's Word, well, our faith is misplaced. So the church consists of baptized believers. But then, uh, section 13 goes on and begins to talk about the organization of the church. What the church does. And one thing I note 
is that the church is governed by Christ's laws. Christ alone is the authority in the church. His word is our law. As he said in the Great Commission that we teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. Or as the apostles will go on many, many times, and I note in the biblical references for this, the last one is all the epistles. What does it mean to follow the, the law of Christ? Well, the apostles tell us what it means to follow the law of Christ in so many different ways. We can't just point out a few but take note that as the Bible talks about fulfilling the law of Christ, following the commands you have heard from the beginning, it's addressed to, to, to us, to the church. Over and over again, the responsibility for following the law of Christ, for recognizing His authority, is a responsibility to the whole church. It's not just the pastor or the deacons or the elders or anyone else in a place of leadership, but it is the church as a whole that is responsible to Christ for following His commands. This is part of why we practice congregationalism. Every member is responsible for to Christ for what happens in that church. And we recognize that through the way we structure our church. We also take note, the next phrase, we're exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by His Word. Now, this, of course, by referencing gifts, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. The gifts that He provides for us, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, that we are zealous for spiritual gifts to seek to excel in building up the church. God gifts the church. The Spirit gifts the church. He distributes His gifts as He wills so that we might fulfill the ministry that God has given to us. We have rights. We have privileges there. All of which are connected to what He tells us by His commands in His Word. But I'm going to go back up to one phrase I skipped. That we are associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the Gospel. That the church is gathered by covenant. Now the idea of covenant is a very biblical idea and we don't have time here to recount the idea of covenant as it's found in the Old Testament in particular and in the New Testament again. But we are perhaps all somewhat familiar with the idea of covenant 
in our concept of marriage. I hope you have a Christian concept of marriage that includes the idea of covenant. That when a man and a woman come together and they speak these vows and they take these pledges, that they are mutually obligating themselves one to another for the rest of their life. And those obligations are not onerous when there is mutual love. When there is love between a husband and wife, the obligations and the challenges of marriage can be met readily. Not always easily, but willingly. The church also gathers by a covenant. Because see, a church is not simply a crowd. A church is not simply showing up on Sunday and singing and listening. Where we gather together and we have the ability to gather together in public worship, there will always be, I hope, more than just the church. I always prefer to preach to more than just the saints that have been there for decades. I am always glad to have an interested observer to arrive in church. But that's our worship service. The church is more than that. Because the church is more than just when we face the front and listen. The church is also when we face one another. When we gather in mutual obligation to one another. When we will look after the best interests of one another whether in a physical sense or a spiritual sense or an emotional sense, when we as a body, when we have need, we reach out to meet that need. We look to one another's welfare because we are in covenant together. The idea of covenant also reminds us that the church is a continuing entity. A church is fundamentally different than a chapel service or a conference or any number of other kinds of gatherings where believers in Christ might gather together and they might do good and blessed and spiritual things but they are not a church because they are not trying to be in a relationship of ongoing faithfulness to one another. You can go to many great and wonderful conferences. You can learn a lot. But you still need someone who can hold you to account. Who can pour into your life. I was uh, observing a conversation a, a few days ago and someone was talking about when he asks young men who they look up to, they always name this famous preacher or that famous preacher and his question was, was where's your discipler? Where's the person that you sat with face to face and they poured life into you? And I've had many such wonderful people. I had Brian Mead 
He was my pastor when I surrendered to preach. He spent several years pouring life into me. Dr. Ron Mitchell, he was my Bible college professor. Three years he poured life into me. Dr. Philip Bryan, here at the seminary, taught me and spoke with me many, many times. Dr. Malcolm Yarnell, my doctoral advisor. Dr. Philip Atterbury, who's been my boss for 13 years. And he's a little bit more than just my boss. He's poured life into me. Dr. Charlie Holmes, who's known me, well, I wasn't very tall back then. <laughs> and he's poured life into me. You see, we need relationships of mutual obligation. This is what churches are to do. This is how churches are able to disciple in a way that nothing else can. A church also is served by faithful men. It notes here that there are scriptural officers, bishops or pastors and deacons. Now listen, there are many faithful, God-honoring ways to serve in God's church, but there are two scriptural needs in the church. It is a good thing to be a Sunday school teacher. It is a good thing to lead in the Wana ministry. It's a good thing to do all kinds of things. But let us never leave these unfilled as if we are fine without a pastor. I don't know any church that is fine without a pastor. And there's a lot of churches that have convinced themselves they're fine without deacons. But they are not fine without deacons. The spiritual health of the church depends on having men of character. Men who fulfill the qualifications given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Listen. A lot of you are going to be pastors. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's always going to be somebody that can preach better than you. There is always going to be a more charismatic man that your people can listen to. But charisma is not a substitute for character. And if you will be a man of character and with you will pastor with faithful patience, you will win the ability to pastor your people in a way nobody on YouTube or the radio ever can. Be a faithful man serving the church serving on behalf of the congregation and then finally the worship of the church the Lord's Supper there's many things we could talk about the worship of the church we we read from Nehemiah this morning not on accident there's many things we could talk about that the church needs to do when it gathers together and one of those is the reading of the Word of God and there are other things. There's a whole class called Theology of Worship. And you haven't taken it, you probably should. But the Lord's Supper is something that belongs uniquely to the church. As Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 11, how we observe the Lord's Supper matters. It is not a matter of indifference that we can just 
do any time we find it convenient or congenial or interesting. It's not something we can just do anywhere we want to do. It is something that we do when we, as the congregation, the church of Christ, when we gather together. When we gather together at the Lord's table, we are a family of God gathering together at the feast He has laid for us. You'll notice that down in front of me there is a table. It looks an awful lot like a communion table. It is not, in fact, a communion table. It might have been used as one at various times because this particular room has sometimes been used by churches to gather here. We have allowed that to happen. But the seminary, I can assure you, has never had a communion service here in chapel. Because we are not a church. And we're not going to pretend that we are. Rather, a church is the one to which the Lord's Supper belongs, in which the members of that church, you see, the Lord's Supper is not for everyone. The Lord's Supper is only for those who have a share in Christ's death, who have been united to Christ's death and resurrection. How do we know that? Well, we know that through their baptism. That's how we know. And we do it to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ. It is a reminder of our sin that pushes us to introspection for so often we are able to carry on through the world feeling good about ourselves and how, how good things we are doing for God. And we need a reminder from time to time that everything we do depends on the grace of God. And it is His sacrifice for us that truly matters. It is a visual depiction of God's graciousness to us. I think it's important to notice in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul doesn't say you have to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper because no one is ever worthy to take the Lord's Supper. He talks about the way we take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he's, he's serious about it. It is a serious thing to come to the Lord's table. And coming in an inappropriate manner, he says, has real consequences for people. But it's a reminder that even though we are unworthy in ourselves, His grace can still come to us. One thing I notice, sometimes we as Baptists, because we... We assert, I think with good biblical reason, that it is a memorial, that it is a reminder, it is a remembrance of Christ. And for some reason, we seem to think we don't need to remember that very often. And I don't know why we think that we shouldn't remember Christ's sacrifice for us on a regular basis, that 
maybe once a quarter or once a year would be enough to remind ourselves of that. But let us not think so much of our spiritual walk that we can go without the reminder God has provided for us of his sacrificial death. No. Let us do it with regularity that our spirits might be encouraged to stay ever humble and ever mindful of our need of God's grace. Let's pray together. Precious Lord, we come before you this morning and Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that gathers believers in Christ together, that knits our hearts together. And Lord, spurs us on more and more towards holiness. Lord, we thank you for the things you have given to your church, the, the spiritual gifts that you have given, the, the ordinances that we can observe that visibly remind us of your ongoing salvific work. Lord, we thank you for the, 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 the pastors and the deacons and that you have given to your churches. And Lord, I pray for those here who are pastors or who are going to be pastors. Lord, that they would be faithful men of character who serve you for all the years that you give them. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does not leave us alone. But Lord, you compel us into the love and fellowship of your people for our good. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.